Welcome to Saving Cities. I'm Jack Story, and in each episode, a member of our team hosts a conversation with an expert in a place-related field. That could be anything from accessibility to zoning and everything in between. Today's guest is international rock star of placemaking, Dr. Catherine Laughlin. She's the author of Place Match, and she's also a leading expert in the field of community attachment. Her work with the Soul of the Community Project, funded by the Knight Foundation from 2008 to 2010, has had some of the most profound impacts on community development and certainly has led the science of community attachment conversation for the last decade. So let's get to it. In fairness, I'm a huge fanboy, so this interview is largely just selfish, and I want to learn more. But I've already learned a decent amount about you in the past couple of months as we have become friends. And I am most curious, a part we haven't really talked about is your school, Mm -hmm. because your degrees are not in typical data science-y fields. Your degrees are in social work and journalism, correct? That is right. That's what my graduate degrees are in, is, is an MSW, a Master's of Social Work, and a PhD in social work with a concentration in journalism. So what was your intended career path? <laughs> so um, I was, I had delusions of being a marriage and family therapist. Um that's really where I was going to be, which is why when Placematch came along, I was able to weld those two disciplines together. But um, I really thought that what I wanted to do was marriage and family therapy. Um, and that's what I was going to go to school for. The journalism came in much later when I realized I was probably going to be more in a macro practice kind of path. And I discovered kind of on my own how powerful journalism is in telling the story. And whether we liked it or not is kind of inconsequential because when you, you know, decide not to be part of the story because you think the media is whatever, then you don't stop the story. You just stop your ability to be a part of it. And I wanted to figure out, because social work had been notoriously bad for not dealing well with the press. And So that was sort of where I came at that. But I will tell you, especially in graduate school, I did not fit anywhere. I was always talking about weird stuff that that is like not, you know, every time I started a presentation for a master's class or for a a PhD, I was like, okay, now for something completely different. You know, I never fit. I never had people. I had to work hard to find faculty that wanted to be a part of what I was doing. They were always in other schools. And I think social work never really knew what to do with me. Um, That makes a lot of sense. That's why I didn't end up in the academic setting anyway. So, but it's a weird, it's not a weird pivot, but it's a non-traditional pivot to go from marriage and family counseling mindset to community and economic development and placemaking. So how how does that happen? (laughs) Well, I'll tell you, I think when I was in the master's program, I started getting into macro practice. What was kind of weird was that you had to declare 
a concentration in the master's program before I had my first macro class. And so I'd sort of declared for marriage and family therapy. And then I took, or families and children was my concentration. And I took my first macro class and understood about community concepts. And one of the things that social work does get right is they talk about person and environment fit. They talk about the only thing that we truly know about people is who they are in the context of their environment. So a lot of other clinical psych programs, you know, there's Freud and, you know, there's behavioral psychology, they don't do a good, as good a job with that ecological theory. So what I loved about social work was like, I, that makes more sense to me. Um, and understanding people is in the context of their place. So then I was more into a community practice path, which put me in executive leadership in nonprofits. That's the other thing that's kind of weird. It's like macro practice means leadership. Um, so I was running nonprofits when I got out of the master's program. Uh, and then uh, I was going to go back to get my PhD to sort of study social capital. Cause I thought, well, hmm. what is the secret sauce in communities sure. that makes one just seem to get it and another one kind of struggle. Um, and at the same time I thought, is it the press? Is it social capital? Is it civic engagement? Is it, you know, all of these concepts. So when I went back to the doctoral program, it was really for, um, trying to figure out the secret sauce. And uh, I sort of left the doctoral program with thinking, well, I guess it's social capital, but I don't feel real good about that. I, I saw things where I didn't, I didn't think that was the answer. Um, and then when I was in the doctoral program, I was recruited by Knight Foundation to come down and run basically their civic engagement portfolio. Um, Which is not a small gig. That is not a small job. Yeah. It, so they it recruited wasn't. you. What was the, were you looking again? This is like a, that's a departure moment in the timeline. <laughs> right. It feels like At, for Knight Foundation. I mean, we've done work with them in the past. They've been great. That's a yeah. big national it was thing. Out of control. It was. So what ended up happening was I, in the doctoral program, um, asked to have, to create my own placement. See, this is why nobody, this is why I was always a freak show. Uh, I asked to create my own placement where I would be the first social worker placed in a newsroom to help with the production of community and social issue stories. And at the time, um, that hadn't been done. So I had to design my own practice and find my own funding and all of that. And I ended up doing it. And I had a really incredible placement um, in a local television newsroom, got a lot of attention and national attention even because I was the first to do something like that. And my dissertation advisor at the time was a grantee of Knight Foundation. And he said, you know, Knight is a journalism based foundation. And he said, listen, we're going down to Miami to meet with our, our funder. Um, what if you just come with us? I think they'd be real curious about what it is you're doing in the newsroom. It's kind of up their alley. And I went down to Miami and, I, you know, it is one of those moments. I'll never forget it. I was in the hallway of Knight Foundation. And I mean, it was all I could do not to, uh, like, I used to ration paper clips. Yeah, right? yeah. 
And they were sitting talking about, well, just do the million there and do the, you know, and I'm just like going, what world am I in? Right. And on top of that, there wasn't anybody like me there. They were all journalists making social issue decisions of huge amounts of money. So I'm walking down the hallway and Hodding Carter, who was our president at the time, who Hodding, you know, big in the Iran-Contra thing. He was the press guy. You know, he was big time. He had on these aviator glasses. I'll never forget. He's walking down the hall on his way to a lunch or something. And and my dissertation advisor said, uh, Mr. Carter, I'd like you to meet this person, you know. And, and I was like, I'm on. I'm on. And I, and he goes, so what do you do? What are you up to? And I said, well, I designed the first social worker in newsroom placement and I help with the production and productivity went up this percent and, you know, viewership went, he went, he ripped his glasses, his aviator glasses off. And he looked at me, he goes, that's bleeping brilliant. Except he didn't say bleeping. (laughs) That's bleeping brilliant. And he looked at somebody, he goes, hire this girl. I mean, it was like, it was like, that's so cool. And that's the last thing I remember. <laughs> <laughs> For all five years. That's, that's it. it. That's, that's it. it. <laughs> but then when they ended up hiring me, then I became my dissertation advisor's overseer, which, you know, that got oh, a little that weird. Be weird. Yeah. Yeah. So, yeah, that's sort of how I ended up at night was that social issue, social worker in the newsroom thing. Um, and then I was recruited and they said, well, what else do you do? You know? I said, well, I know a lot about civic engagement. And they're like, you know, let's hire you as a consultant. And then I could walk away from my research assistant job where I was making basically what I make in a month, I made in a week as a consultant for night, which won me a lot of friends in the class. You know, I'm was- sure. <laughs> so when you're there, you're there as a consultant the whole time, or are you are you at night for a period of time where you're like working for night? Yeah, I, they, they basically created a job. I was a um, consultant for them while I was in the doctoral program. Um, So I'd fly down to Miami on the weekends. Again, people hated me. It was, it was, it was not, it was great though. I have to say. (laughs) Yeah, of course. Uh, And that was in about 1999. And then they hired me as the program officer in civic engagement and um, positive human relations, which was their race relations uh, priority in 2001. And then I moved down there 2002. And I hadn't fit, I had finished my coursework, but I hadn't finished my, my dissertation. So I got married and I moved to Miami from North Carolina, the only home I'd ever known all within the same month. Oh, wow. To start this new job at Knight Foundation. I remember my fiance at the time driving me to the airport and I remember crying because I was like, this is, I was, you know, you get stuff you want and then it terrifies you. Absolutely. I was so scared. I didn't want to leave. I, and he's like, you got to go. I mean, this is like, you'll regret this forever, but it was, it was hard to go and it was hard to be down there and still try to get my work done and work for night. And it was tough. I it was tough. And like, let's take a break from that to talk about Miami for a little bit. Cause we've gotten to talk about it a little. I have explored Miami and it's a really interesting place. It is not Miami beach. No. It is Miami. And I think a lot of folks, when you say Miami have a different view of what that means. 
versus what it's like. And, and so I, I'm an Ohio boy. Miami felt more homey than I would have expected. Hmm. How did you kind of experience the downtown and the neighborhoods of Miami proper? Well, I will say that one of my first placemaking, if you want to call it that, lessons, because I didn't know that concept then, of course, I, I didn't know anything about a community attachment or anything like that, is one of the things I learned in Miami taught me this. So I was down there from 2001 to 2010, and um, or 2000, yeah, 2010. No, 2012. Gosh. Anyway, one of the things I noticed because I worked in downtown is a lot of people, when they go on vacation, they think, well, we'll get a hotel in downtown. That'll be the center of everything, right? right? And at five o'clock, when downtown Miami would shut down, you know, because it was all a corporate thing, you'd see these families walking on the sidewalk, holding their children's hands going, wait, where's the beach? You know, and it's not that way in Miami at all. No. Um, so that was like the first lesson is like, not every downtown is this is the heart of a town in what you think it's about. Um, and then my second lesson was like, I'm not in Kansas anymore. I remember my real estate agent asking me, because I bought the first thing I bought was a town home. And I couldn't believe what I paid for the town home. But my real estate agent said, well, do you want to roll your parking space into your mortgage or pay for it separately? And I was like, what? You know, because in North Carolina, you park your car in front of your townhouse. I mean, it's not, and it's just a different world. Everything was different. And he said to me, you're going to hate it here the first year. Just prepare yourself. You're going to hate it. Interesting. And I pretty much did. I mean, I, I think the hardest day for me in the first year I was in Miami was the day that I switched my my license plate from North Carolina to Florida. Because when I had the North Carolina plate, people were like, oh, bless her heart. She, she you know, let her in. She doesn't know not to use a turn signal. You know, she doesn't know that we go 40 miles over the speed limit. She doesn't know any of this. But the moment I got a Florida tag, it was like, you take no prisoners. It was like, it was like fast and the furious. And I wasn't, I wasn't, I was still the North Carolina girl in a Florida car and it was a disaster. I cried yes. all the way home. <laughs> Many days. <laughs> Many I days. can speak to the Florida driving. I went to school in Winter Park, Florida. Oh, and yeah. that was a similar experience for me was, oh, this is the worst. Driving here is absolutely the worst experience. Uh, it was, it's so stressful. It, it really, really is. Is stressful. And, and, and on top of that, everybody I worked with at night would say, where are you from? And I'd say North Carolina. They'd say, why in the world would you leave there to come here? And it's like these kinds of messages we send to new people about our place. Yep. It started filtering in my head that, oh my God, this place is not, it's a bait and switch place, you know, but it, it never felt completely like home. My daughter was born down there. And so I had to, but I never got used to it. I couldn't get rid of the accent. I couldn't stop saying hi to people in grocery stores. Even when the public's manager told me that we don't do that down here. People think you're out to get them. You know, it was a hard transition that I never was able to do. So but 10 years is a long time to be in a place especially when you work in place. Uh, 
as a thing. And then also to be able to maintain kind of the very North Carolina ishness Mm -hmm. of you. Like, how did you manage that mentally? So just, you know, I get that you didn't fit in or you didn't ever feel like you fit in, but how do you stay? Well, how do you stay? And then how do you stay positive when you're there for that's a long time? It is a long time. And I think sort of as the antithesis of everything I usually preach or what, um, what the research shows that job held me there. Um, that job, I learned so much and they were so good to me. They gave me six months off to finish my dissertation, um, paid. Um, and I'll never forget that about them. And they were amazing to me. So the community I had at night made up for a little bit of sort of when I left there, um, I didn't feel as much community. Um, but at first it's interesting, Jack, I was really, people would talk about my accent and I would be ashamed. Like I would work really hard to try to bite in my consonants and not let them draw out. And I never had a bad accent, but I, you know, people like just say more stuff. And I was like, wait a minute, I've gone all the way through school and you just want to hear me read the phone book. I mean, let's so, but after a while I was like, screw it. This is me. I can't be anything that I'm not. Everybody else is from somewhere else here anyway. So I just get in in that sense. But it was hard. But that job was really important to me. And then when I was ready to leave um, around 2008 is when the economy fell out. And Miami on the real, I owned, we owned two houses in Miami, both underwater. I wasn't going anywhere. Yeah. It was a nightmare. Ugh. And you also, so you left night around that same time in the official capacity, right? Yeah. Started your consulting. Was it always kind of the plan to work with them? <laughs> because your first no. client becomes the night vibration, no. yes? <laughs> no, it wasn't. So basically what happened was um, I was very f- driven. And um, even when I, was, uh, when I was pregnant with my daughter, you know, I was at work and people would, I'll never forget just being huge. And people could see my daughter's hand like through my skin in a meeting. And they're like, they just have these horrified looks. Like, Are you okay? And I'm like, yeah, it's just, she, it's lunchtime. She wants something spicy. She's doing her dance in there. I was going to be back. I didn't clean out my office. I was like, I have this kid. I'm going to be back. And I was running so much stuff at night by then um, that I thought I'm going to be back. Um, and I had my daughter. They gave me a very generous leave. And when it was about a month away, from me needing to go back, I walked into the closet to get dressed to go to kinder music. I had a walk-in closet because Miami. Um, And I saw way back in the back, all my business suits. And and the thought hit me, I'm going to have to pull those back up front again. And I burst into tears. Mm. I just started crying. And my husband at the time found me in the closet. He goes, what are you crying for? And I said, I don't, this will be the only child I have. I just know it. And I'm going to miss. I'm going to miss it. I'm going to miss stuff. And he goes, well, don't go back. I said, I have to go back. I mean, how could we not, we have to afford. He, he was like, we'll figure it out. I mean, it was one of these moments. So I ended up, you know, when it was time for me to return, I said to them, 
I had, and I did at the time I had like five jobs at night and I said, we need to figure out what my one job is and tell me what that is. And then we'll figure this out. And the one job they, they, my supervisor at the time gave me was a traveling job. You know, I want you to run, I want you to run all the grants out of these communities. And I'm like, First of all, I don't grant to communities where I fly in and fly out. I just feel right, like that's right, obnoxious. Right. And second of all, that's a traveling job and I'm a new mom. And so I said, I don't think I can take that. I don't. And they said, what? What? What will you do? I said, I'll go back into consulting. I don't know. And they said, what if we outsource your job back to you and you can do whatever you know you want? <laughs> like, What a gift. Wait, what? Yeah. I mean, I went, you know, pretty quickly from one moment to another where I was being told what my job would be to being able to choose it. And I'll never forget Alberto Ibarguen, who is the president now, said, you know, um, you won't have your benefits anymore, but you'll get your life back. And that was the last, again, last thing I remember. And that ended that phase of me ever working for anybody ever again. How awesome. And that was, that's when I started consulting. And the first big job I got as a consultant was Soul. Right. Which is where we're going to spend a lot of time right now (laughs) talking. Because that is how I came to know your work. Uh, And so you were doing this stuff at night, but were you working in community attachment and that kind of... So, okay. Then walk me through how, how do you get from grant making and program directing outside of community attachment to basically Mm -hmm. driving one of the most significant advances in how we can quantify attachment to place. How do you do that? How does that, what's that look like? Uh, It looks like if you don't think there is some level of guidance going on in your life, um, I have a story for you because when they handed me soul at first, I was the contract negotiator for the project. And that was interesting. So I was dealing with Gallup, very research organization and night community based, blah, blah, blah. So I had basically the two worlds that we deal with in community practice all the time. And I was the translator, the research stuff, and the and the on the ground stuff, right? right? And so I'm designing this contract, trying to figure out what outcomes we should expect from Gallup, knowing that they could be translated for night in their communities. And the more I was going through this, I said to them, "You're going to need a translator. You're going to need somebody who can talk data and make this stuff stand up in a court of law." Yep. And somebody who can turn it around and make it into a grant making program on the ground in communities. Hmm. And they said, you're right. We do. We absolutely need that. And everybody looked around in their own little worlds and discovered we have no one like that. And uh, they said, well, I think it must be you. You must be the person. But now we have to pull you off. Make you're now part of the team. So you can't conflict of interest. You can't decide the grants anymore. And Uh, And that was fine. So I came on board and the way Gallup always talked about this at first until we sort of started changing our vision about this was community engagement, which in our world is a civic engagement kind of thing. And so I went in thinking this is kind of like a civic engagement thing. Um, 
And it's based on Gallup's work in the workplace where they figured out that employee engagement relates to success of companies. So they were like, we just want to see if we can make this true about communities. And of course, um, they were all over it. And I was all over that. So slowly but surely, I said, I don't, this isn't engagement. Engagement means something to us that you're not meaning here. This is an emotional bond. Um, And as we developed it, 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 at first, I just didn't give it any credence. I just thought these kumbaya feelings are going to relate to something meaningful. I doubt it. And I don't think we're going to measure it. I don't think we're going to be able to figure out how it's driven in communities. And I don't get what it matters for. Um, so I was, we were all exploring these concepts for the very first time, honestly. Um, and nobody was wedded to them at all, really, when we started out. And this was a $2 million grant to run right. this assessment in 26 yeah. places. And so if you can walk me through exactly what the thesis statement was. So that you had an idea. Mm-hmm. Everyone started to poke around. Mm-hmm. It's already kind of funded. <laughs> so, mm-hmm. uh, and then the cities obviously get selected by their work with the Knight Foundation. So that's a relatively simple way to kind of look at the map. But what was the actual thesis statement of this project? It was a question, which is the, you know, the definition of exploratory research almost as always is it, it's a question. And the question was, what makes people love where they live and why does it matter? And then how did the quantitative component of that become really, to me, inarguably the most important part of validating that the answer to that question like how did you guys come up with the fact that yeah it's an emotional thing but we we can't treat it like a qualitative right situation because then that that holds no water no one's going to pay attention it's not going to be useful and we're just going to have thrown two million dollars you know out the window which happens (laughs) more often than any of us want (laughs) to talk about but in this particular instance it didn't right because the outcome of that was quantitative information yeah about how people viewed their own attachment right to a place right so the first thing and this is where social work helped me a little bit um was the idea that first of all you can't ask people how attached are you to your place or how much you love where you live (laughs) right um and expect a quantitative answer uh Because people, it was interesting because when you do ask people that, unfortunately, and now it's even more so, they move towards deficit quickly. They'll say, well, you know, it's a nice place. We like our neighbors, but you know, you know, right. So we had to figure out, well, what are the components of love? Um, And we looked at their employee engagement research because they came up with this engaged uh, employee thing. And there were elements in there around, I'm proud of my job. Um, I'm satisfied with it. I would recommend this as a place to work. You know, there were some of these ideas that we thought that they had proven already in a workplace. So what we had to do was take that employee engagement model and translate it into community. So, you know, and add some things to it. So there was this idea of, 
optimism. It became this multi, what I should say is this multifaceted construct based on the employment engagement research. So we had a metric that looked at optimism. How optimistic are you about your community's future? Would you recommend it as a place? Um, Do you feel like it's the perfect place for you? So you couldn't imagine a place that's better for you than this one. Are you satisfied living there? And is there a pride in your place? So it was basically five things that we believed would construct a construct, construct a construct, that was pretty good, of attachment. Um, And at the time, that was pretty much unheard of. Um, you, You might have seen people talk about satisfaction. Right. But one of the things that Soul was able to do was say satisfaction doesn't predict mobility. You could be satisfied living somewhere and still bolt tomorrow. Um, attachment is harder. It's deeper. It's being in love with a, with a place, you know, and um, that's sort, sort of how we got to this idea of a, changing it from engagement to attachment. And then in layman's terms, talking about it as bond or love and then building back from what Gallup had already done is how we came up with that actual measure of attachment. And I thought, you know, I pulled from um, parent-child attachment research. Yep, um, that makes sense. And I pulled from human condition as far as what makes us bond to each other, what makes us bond to our parents, our families, our peers, all of that. And that helped inform kind of the words that I thought we should be using and how we should be measuring that. So then it became, we didn't ask, are you attached to your place? We would say on a scale of one to five, how much would you say this is a perfect place for you? And letting people, eh, how much would do, are you optimistic about the community's future? Eh, you know, you started to create a picture. Um, and what was also really good about that is that we could tease out which of those elements were more important than others to getting that attachment. So if you can't get all five, what would be the key ones you should really try to get? And what are the ones that are good to get, but maybe not as related to the overall construct of attachment? And that's kind of how it started. That took a few months, no doubt. (laughs) A few months. You say that like it was a long time, right? You're pioneering a way to do something. You're talking about a couple of months being a long time, but talk about, let's talk about attachment and the benefits of attachment yeah. though. Cause yes, we can do this. And now you've come up with this way to kind of measure it, but what, why, why does it matter exactly. for a place to know that information? You know, um, I believe very strongly when it comes to communities that they have been dissected and studied so much and treated like guinea pigs a lot of times. And then communities go through all this effort and nothing's ever done with any of it done used. Like, what did you do for these people? Right. You published an article, really, you know, you, you satisfied a funder who didn't care about application of findings, you know? So for me, it was critical that we, only ask about things that we had an intention to do something about. Um, and we had to have a, so what? So I, when I do the, my talk, sometimes I talk about why it was important. Your question is so important that once we build out from the heart, 
of attachment, um, we had to say, well, what drives those feelings? So what drives those feelings? Right. And if you feel that way, so what? Is this kumbaya? Yay, we love our place, whatever. Right, right. You know, so there was a building back and a building forward that I thought was the only way we were going to make this data actionable. Uh, If we just came up with attachment metrics, which I personally would have thought that's pretty good to even be able to measure this. But if you can't do something with it, like understand, like if I went into a community and said, well, you know, you need to work on your optimism. And if you work on your optimism, your attachment, okay, you guys have a good time. You know, I'm a (laughs) deuces. I'm out, you know, good luck to you. It wasn't going to work. So we had to know what are the things about a place that trigger those feelings and when you have those feelings or don't have those feelings, so what? Because if we didn't have a so what, even if we knew what drove them, I don't think it would have mattered. No, the only yeah, thing, of course. I, I think the only thing that got us on, on the cover of all of these newspapers and magazines and television was that so what, which was local economic growth. At the time, that was the outcome that we were, we were measuring against. And the coolest part about that to me is that I get very frustrated and did in my economics courses uh, get very frustrated with the fact that behavioral economics is often treated like a fringe science. Uh, Right. And so part of what I think this and your work has helped to prove is also all economics is behavior, right? Yes. I think that, I mean, I think that's true. Um, I think this goes a, a distance in proving that because there is economic value from people's attachment, which means their behavior towards their place, right? How they act in their place is actually an economic development, uh, should be a standard of how to plan for economic development at the very least. Um, so yeah. that is amazing. That's exactly right. It's, it, it was, you know, um, it was one of those moments where, if you put it in the right context, it's like I always talk about things being like a kaleidoscope. If you just shift the the viewer a little bit, you start, things fall into place differently. And so when I would go into communities and I would get sort of blank stares, I would literally start talking about what detergent do you buy? Like I would take behavioral economics and say, well, what about it? Well, I like the brand. Um, I'm satisfied with the outcomes. I, the price seems reasonable. Um, it's on sale a lot. And, and I'd say, well, what if this other brand came, would you buy it? And they, I don't know. And in a nutshell, what you're talking about is person's attachment to a consumer brand. Right. Exactly. And how hard it is to pull them off of that, which helps that brand. The more people they can get to feel that way, the better off they're going to do. So to your point, it is behavioral economics. And and everything is behavioral economics, I'm afraid. I think so, too. I think so. I you tend know, to agree. I think you're right. You know, And I think for places, um, I had to be very careful not to go overboard and say, you know, this is the only thing that matters. But what I was going to say, and I said it often, was how attachment isn't the be-all, end-all for economic growth in the community. But what we do know is that it has never had a place at the table before. And it at least 
deserves to be part of the new economic development playbook that we should be working off of instead of 1948s, um, if we could. Which unfortunately um, has not been adopted at the rate any of us, I think, would hope that it would have, because we're a full decade now from the end of that study, right? Yeah, I know. Uh, and it is very frustrating. It. <laughs> it is weird. It has guided my a vast majority of my career in community and economic development, uh, and that does not feel like a decade ago. Uh, and I can't believe, like, how did I... I would have never known that about you if I hadn't read some random comment on a Facebook post that I wasn't even tagged on. That's and true. And I'm just like, who is this guy? And he's done. <laughs> he's used my work. He's validated my existence. Who is this guy? <laughs> I know it is a weird. The coronavirus has given us some weird gifts. Uh, oh, that's true. Some weird silver that's linings. That is true. Um. And certainly our friendship is, is a big one of those for me, but it was, wow. it was seminal. Like it was such a weird thing. And the guy that I worked with, who's still one of the greatest people I've ever met uh, and, a, and a great friend, he was really about it and he wanted to use it aggressively at a much smaller level. Mm-hmm. Um, sure. And it was, we liked being obnoxiously, forward i guess to your point because we were all running off of this really old playbook yeah. um, and we had recently started making some some gains in our community by ignoring that playbook mm-hmm. um, which drew the ire of <laughs> the councilmen um, and the city and the funders and everybody but at the same time it was like yeah but it's working like we're getting mm-hmm. people to show up we're getting mm-hmm. you know people want to be here so let's keep doing it. And when this came along, it was uh, the honest to God truth. It was a, a way for us to show, mm-hmm. look, you are telling us we're doing this wrong. Let us show you quantitatively that you're wrong. Right. 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 So let us show you that we're doing this right and that this is having a tangible impact. And so we did that for six years. We tracked that, I think, five, six years. And, amazing. And it it was the result was clear, right? And it gave us the ability to fundraise at a national level, which mm-hmm. a small Cleveland, Ohio neighborhood um, had never had cause or, or reason to mm-hmm. be able to compete at that level, right? So yeah, yeah, yeah it was. It's it really um, if people are working still to figure out what to do, mm-hmm. especially as we try to work through coronavirus moment and and what the what the other side of this whole mess looks like i think attachment and the work that you guys pioneered so that we can all have access to it is going to be like the most maybe the most critical part of community development economic development in the next couple of years no i i i agree um and i think you know with attachment for my own personal journey it became oh crap, maybe this is the secret sauce that I never found before that social capital doesn't get to and civic engagement doesn't get to in the same way because what you're talking about is a melding of perception of your future being tied with another thing and that creating different synapses firing in you um, than voting you know, which is important, but 
it just was never satisfying. And attachment, I started thinking, maybe this is it. And how come we don't talk about this? Well, because nobody knows we're, we're building the plane as we're flying it. I mean, right. we don't, we don't know. And, and the other thing that struck me being from my background in social work was, you know, when you look at Maslow's hierarchy of needs, how right after food, clothing, and shelter, you hit belonging, <laughs> you hit belonging. And either that being in a community and a family, it's a bond that you feel like I fit. That's right. I'm okay. I fit. Um, and for me, that started building in my mind, civic engagement doesn't build belonging. Social. So I'd start running through all these theoretical models in my head and thought, holy crap, this is hitting individual outcomes that we know are important. You know, you cannot be self-actualized, according to Maslow, unless you take those things in order. And so right after food, clothing, and shelter, we, we have belonging. Um, that's important. That's yeah. an important thing and where we get that belonging. So things started clicking for me once I got that model in my head of, okay, this is what attachment is. What does it do for? What does it do for communities? What does it do for people? Um, what bad outcomes does it suppress? Mm -hmm. And what other outcomes does it protect? So there's these protective factors that attachment gets, like, for example, um, you know, so we had the local economic growth, which is great, GDP growth, that's fine. But when I was going around with Seoul and talking about the findings, people would say, because the economy was falling out of all these places, you know, and right. people's personal economies are were crap. And their attachment scores were staying same or getting even better. And I was like, what is what is happening? And and they would say, you know, this place has been a harbor to me in the storm mm -hmm. of my own yeah. personal situation. I love it. Or if you didn't love it there, it just added to the, the, the discontent, I guess, that you could feel. Um, and so then we started seeing, wow, you know, attachment is not defined by rich people feeling good about their place. There's something more here. There's a protective factor that it insulates people a little bit from some of the negative outcomes that that they could be experiencing. So, and and plus, we had a lot of communities that couldn't go on vacation or whatever, so they had to rediscover their place. Yeah, which is lovely, this, right? That it was not bad. You know, yeah. I think we have some of that going on now. Um, it's an important event to like leverage as we open back up, if we open back up, and all that stuff. Well, my buddy, Jeff Siegler from Revitalize or Die and a Proud Places buddy, uh, he likes to talk about how most cities have turned their back on the residents in favor of tourism, right? Uh, mm -hmm. I don't know if I fully agree, but I certainly agree that it is true in some instances. But I think the interesting part about now, to your point there, is cities are going to have to start thinking about how to attract their existing residents um, right. And I don't, and I mean, attract, not retain, because I think they've never done the front, the, the legwork up front to kind of attract them to right. the city. They're just there. I think That's a lot exactly of places, right. people are just there. That's exactly right. I, I work with a lot of tourism boards and I say to them all the time, your number one customer as a tourist is your resident. Right. 
Like you all are on the front lines of ambassadorship for your people to like you. <laughs> and if they, and on top of that, like, have you ever been flying on an airplane? I, I used to fly a lot on airplanes and I would see advertisements for places. And I would say, I've been to that place. <laughs> That's not that place, you right. know? So being okay with the authentic brand of who you are and stop bull, you know, wanting the, the people because residents see that and they're like, I've never been there. I live here, but I've never seen anything like that. Right. You know, that bait and switch. So I do think you're right. The resident in tourism is often the forgotten equation piece for sure. They're not going to let, they're not going to be able to keep doing that though. I think that I agree. another silver lining of this whole situation is you have to start paying attention if you want to drum up more economic development no, I opportunities. I, um, I want to talk about this for the next six hours, but. I think we've done a good job. And I think your mentioning of bait and switch is a good point to pivot into. You wrote a book. So you did all this work. You're going on, you're running this thing. You write a book called Place Match. Place mm-hmm. Match is, I think, a wonderfully accessible book. It is the kind of book I expected a different book when I first read it. Right. Because I was like, well, this is going to be about this data science and this is going to have all this stuff. And this this is really it's kind of a small book to have all of the data science I expected would be in this book. Um, But it wasn't. It was more of a wonderful story that was very personal. And it talked about place, I think, a lot more at the way that my mom and dad would understand this Mm -hmm. concept of place. Um, Mm -hmm. And then added so much extra for them to think about. And I thought that is a really interesting way to decide to use a book after you were this, you know, you're, you're talking about how we're going to quantify these things and how we're going to break these things down into different economic buckets. And then your book was largely a love letter, which was really wonderful. That's nice. But nice. What was that decision for you? to write such a, a kind of, not to be ironic, but divorced uh, book <laughs> from the situation that you were in. Yeah. Um, you know, place match, the idea of place match, first of all, to your question, if anybody has ever read, and I'm sorry if you've had an academic journal article Um, you have an introduction, you have the literature review, which is everybody else's what they've said. And then you have um, the data and the analysis plan. And then you have the findings. And finally, and usually the smallest part is the interpretation and the discussion. and So what? And I made a very conscious decision that this book was not going to be this book was going to be all discussion. It was going to be the, so what it wasn't going to be all this other stuff because the more I could mainstream these ideas, the greater the reach of the work would be that people would give it to their parents. They would, it was not designed for us. It was designed for people that we never talked to, which is the people who are doing this. And I felt like I had spent, many years talking to mayors and talking to, you know, I would do town halls and stuff, but every time I did a town hall, I would change the way I talked about it. 
or people would be just like, you know, <laughs> you could glaze over with this stuff super quickly. <laughs> sure. So I, my, I am always about reach. I am always about reach and implication and making this work for you, not to show how smart I am. And I can say words that you have to look up at. No one gives a crap about that. What they care about is their lives. And so how can I help them with their lives? That's my job Um, and help cities figure that out. But it actually occurred to me in a moment um, where I was giving a keynote. I'll never forgive. I talk about this in the book where I was in Ottawa and I was recently separated and it was just not a good time. And I, I had, I was in the hometown of my separated husband's girlfriend and I'm giving this huge keynote for the Federation of Canadian Municipalities. So every mayor, every, every leading person in Canada is in this room. There's 500 people in this room. And I'm doing my, and I had laryngitis. And somehow that morning it disappeared. It was just like one of these moments. And I'm up there. And I don't know. There was something about that moment where I felt like, Somebody told me that, you know, mentioned a name that I knew was related to the girl. And I thought, God, are her parents in the audience? I was just like, it was just this weird moment. And I'm up there and I wanted to do good and, and do well as my mother would correct me. And, um, (laughs) mine too. I know. And I said, you know, we go through these relationships with our place. And sometimes as I'm talking about this, I end up saying a point like, it's like any marriage. And in the back of my throat, I started feeling welly, like I'm going to cry, but I knew I wasn't going to cry because in that moment, I'm like, oh my God, this is right. Like what I'm experiencing in my own personal life is what people experience with their place. You know, you fall in love and it gets rough and either you pull through or you don't. Um, and when I said it's like any marriage, the entire room just sort of went, oh, <laughs> you know, it was like this moment where it all made sense in a different way, um, this whole attachment stuff. And so at that moment, I knew I need to, in a mainstream audience, talk about this in the most relatable way possible. And what is that? The experience of finding your partner, um, the experience of going through a relationship with someone. And then I pulled all my marriage and family therapy therapy stuff and I realized and I looked at the data that it lined up almost perfectly how long it takes to date, date a place, dating, how long, what happens in a marriage where things can get rough, what is the year where you start to have problems, you know, what makes you decide to hang in there versus let it go, what is that divorce like? Um, and then how do you find the courage to move on? I mean, it, it, it fit all of my data. And I was like, okay, I gotta, I gotta do this because this is something that requires no master's degree, no PhD. Cause we've all been there. We've all been in a dating relationship and, um, it was really, I'll never forget it. I got, I always have this tell when I'm onto something and I get the, the, the tingles up the back of my neck. And I knew then I'm like, okay, this is what I need to be talking about and how I should be talking about it. And it changed the mainstreamness of this work. 
it went from Richard Florida world to, you know, CNN. I mean, it's a different ball game. Which is simultaneously brilliant. And also, uh, really simple. Like it's a really simple way to look at it, which is great. And I think one of the bigger takeaways from that part of it is uh, it takes work. It's like attachment isn't just something that the place has to get from you or earn from you. And I liked that idea of, yeah, it's places like I'm from Cleveland and it doesn't matter where I live. Right. I'm from Cleveland. I'm a Clevelander. Yeah. Forever. And I think people are just like, oh, man, I'm sorry. You hear that a lot. Oh, you're from Cleveland? I'm sorry. I'm not. You know, uh, it's my favorite place on, on the planet. Right. It doesn't mean it's problem free. It doesn't mean it can pay my bills. <laughs> it doesn't mean a lot of stuff. Um, but it is my favorite place on the planet. And no other place will ever earn that spot for yeah. me. Right. And right. to have that awareness of it doesn't mean I can't move on from it. It doesn't mean that I can't mm-hmm. have other relationships with other places, mm-hmm. but knowing like, well, that's my place. And that yeah. place takes a lot of work and I still want to go up there and do work. And I still get the occasional opportunity to do that. But I loved that thought process. Yeah. I mean, you know, and, and I talk about in the book, like um, it's not, you have to, like I used to tell, I think Dr. Phil says this too. You can't, you should never marry somebody without seeing them first with the flu. Like to your point, you have to find the things that aren't great about your place, at least worthy of your effort right? or pathetically adorable. Like here in the South, we can't drive in the snow. It's bad. We'll shut down for weeks. We're done. It can't do it. And I find that endearing because that's, that's who we are, you know, that's not, but there's also sides. I mean, our history in the South, isn't that great? We have a lot of things we're still trying to get right. Um, And you have to be okay with being in it with your, to your point, to your place. That's part of loving it is knowing it's bad and wanting to be with it to make it better instead of like, oh my God, you're disgusting. I'm out of here, you know? Right. And some places, the bad of it, the the downside of it is not something people want to be a part of. They just, that's not, it's a deal breaker in some places. And sure, you have to know that you have to have the good and the bad and the ugly and still be in it with them about that. I agree. And so that, that takes me to kind of Cary where you're, you're at now in Cary, North Carolina, which I came to see and then ended up getting a delightful a uh, couple of beverages before the craziest storm uh, I've been in for quite some time. So we didn't get to see much of anything, but yeah. it was lovely to hang out. Um, and we talked a bit about this kind of stuff. But one of the things we were talking about was how you ended up in Cary. Mm-hmm. And I have a, my question is kind of two questions here is one, why Cary? And then also, how do you manage to balance a single place for yourself when you like to, to become attached for you mm-hmm. when a, you're so close to all this work because you mm-hmm. created a lot of it and then B you're traveling all over the place. Right. So, and I know from doing some of that traveling, I have an attachment to loads of places and it's hard to dedicate so much time and commitment 
to a single place, but you really have managed to do that in Carrie. And that kind of ties into your amazing place production. The amazing right? so, place. Yeah. Yeah. Um, because that is a labor of love. Like, so first explain a little bit about uh, what amazing place productions is okay. and what it does. Okay. So I think one of the things that kept me, first of all, after the book came out, I really wished because one of the chapters in the book is the mayor as mother-in-law, which I had to do something about leadership and how it either facilitates the relationship or interferes in a way that's not conducive. But I wish I had done one more chapter called the side place, <laughs> you know, as the version of the side chick which, or the side guy, which isn't good, whatever. <laughs> but when we go on vacation, we're visiting our side place. When we get away, like I did, we're going to our side place. And, and, you know, somebody asked me one day about, is that okay? And I said, it's correct. Do you go on vacation? Yes. Okay. It's okay to have other places that meet some of your needs, but you know, you couldn't live there. You could live there as a tourist or as a person in an Airbnb, but it's not going to be forever. And that kind of fits the side, <laughs> but we'll, we'll leave some of that alone. Um, <laughs> draw your own conclusions there. But it is a valid concept to keep people understanding that they can feel attachment to other places and it still not mean a problem. This is where the analogy can sort of fall apart, but it doesn't mean there's a problem necessarily with your relationship with your main place, that not every place is going to meet every single need from cradle to grave. It could be your partner, sole partner, whatever you want to call it. There's more to it. Um, and the reason why I'm a North Carolina girl, I grew up in Jamestown, which is right outside of High Point. My parents still live in the house I grew up in. I mean, it's just ridiculously old fashioned um, how I grew up. And I moved down to Raleigh to go to NC State and undergrad and then stayed here in Raleigh, which is right the, in our capital right next to Cary to go to graduate school because I didn't want to live in Chapel Hill, which is a whole other story. Um, and when I left Miami, I hadn't been in North Carolina really in 10 years. And so I was living this journey I was writing about, except now I was doing it with a child. I was separated, getting divorced, moving back home, had this great professional like victory. I was doing really well. I was getting lots of attention. The work was moving and my personal life was just a disaster. And so when I moved back home, it was hard not to feel like a failure because I left here engaged and married and I came back here single and with a kid. Um, and I felt bad about that. And so finding a place that I knew I wanted to live in with that situation, um, was difficult. I ended up choosing after I had to come back and learn my place again, too. I went through the same thing everybody else does. And I chose Carrie. It was really between Charlotte and Raleigh. And if you're living in Raleigh for me, Carrie just seemed like the better place. So I moved into a neighborhood I rented, which I always used to tell people like I rent. I'm mostly respectable. We need to sort of get over ourselves a little bit about renters. <laughs> yes, a, a thousand percent. Because sometimes they're more attached than the owners, especially Absolutely. in the last decade. It's really changed. And we haven't, I, it showed up in my data that renters could be more attached 
than homeowners because at that time people were underwater. They wanted out. Yes. Renters were like, I'd die to have a house here. So anyway, that's a whole, but I was the only person renting and divorced in my Cary neighborhood. If you know anything about Cary, you know, we are very, we, we have our stuff together. We believe in placemaking. Um, and that's one of the reasons why I chose it because I wanted to live in a place I didn't need to work in. That's an excellent point. And that's how I kept it separate. And that's why here I'm just Catherine Laughlin. My neighbors don't know who, what I, I mean, I, I'm close with my neighbors and they don't really know who, if they Google me, they would. Right. But I've kept it super separate. Um, so that when I go to dinner, I don't have to say hi to people and I don't have to come to the meetings and I can just enjoy my place. And that's how it's worked. Amazing Place Productions came about though, um, because one of my um, favorite things to do, and I'd never done it before I moved back here, was community theater. I just got a kick out of it. I don't know. I just, I loved it. And I was involved as a cast member in a show that was original production about the story of a neighboring town. And we had like a 10 show run and I played the, the second wife of the founder of the town. And my daughter was in the, the show as well. And uh, the experience of being in that production completely changed the way I understood place again, because I have never seen people move so quickly in falling in love with a place mm. than after a two-hour show told well and, and objectively about its journey. I mean, you, we would walk out to greet the audience after the show hit crying. Like I was like having to break out my social worker skills because pe older people were crying and new people saying, I wish I lived here and I love this moment. And, and you tell a story of a place in the South, it's going to have slavery in it. It's going to have underbelly. And the author and the playwright, Angie Staley, did an amazing job of, of balancing that um, and telling the story of how it almost, you know, went down. And after the Civil War, how they planted rice paddies in a local lake, they drained the lake, and how Christmas decorations saved the town in downtown one year. I mean, just these little stories nobody knew. It changed I've never seen attachment levels move so quickly in my life. I always say, and it was proven by my data, that you can change attachment in a year. Absolutely. Not you just fix social offerings, aesthetics, and just one of those things, and you'll see same year differences in attachment. Okay. Then I was like, boy, I'm a dumbass. In two hours, <laughs> <laughs> you can change pride in place the optimism someone has about their future, their satisfaction, feeling like, yes, this, this I, I understand this journey of this place. It fits. And I, um, I ended up talking to Angie. We became friends. And I said, you know, if we added some of my place stuff in this model of telling a story about a place, I think this could be the best community attachment project I have ever been a part of. And I've been a part of award-winning community attachment projects. I've never seen one. And we did that on $500. Right. Did a $500. And it made $27,000, $28,000 for the town. Nice. So a money-making, money place-making project? 
that costs five hundred dollars to do? Come on, champion so level. I started. I said, let's 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 do this. Let's let's make it. Let's put you know local historical storytelling on Laughlin steroids, and see what we get. And it has been. Um, I'm right in the middle. I've just started. Ah, writing the story of Carrie. So when it's your own hometown or your new adopted town or whatever, I mean, I was talking about writing the story of my hometown, all this stuff. And of course, what I'm going to do in Carrie because of COVID, but even before COVID, I was going to do this is, is get people. I'm crowdsourcing the writing. Yes. I saw that. I was going to ask about that. So that is a really uh, fun, but potentially tricky to navigate idea. How's it going? You know, it's, it is going. I think that people, as with usual with me, people are like, huh, you're going to do what? I'm like, just wait. It'll be fabulous. Just wait. Um, But what I love about it is that Carrie has a very racially diverse population. Not a lot of people know that. And, and so we have one of the most beautiful Buddhist temples you will ever see. We have a beautiful Mormon temple. We have, there's a lot of faith-based diversity here. And I was very worried because Angie got some pushback, you know, that this was a bit, you know, you left some stories out. Sure. Of course you can do. But if I had this crowdsourced written, then I could say it's, this is our story told by us. And so what I'm most pleased about is the diversity of the writers that are coming forward. And some of them don't know how to write a scene, but what's brilliant is we have a club in Cary called the Cary um, Playwrights. And so they're working with me to take stories and turning them into um, scenes. And so I think this is going to effing work. I am super excited. And we're going to have some protection from the fair criticism that a lot of productions about places can get is that you missed all that, or you didn't bother with that, or you didn't. Well, here's my team of writers. It's not just me. And hopefully we will be choosing with enough time for everybody to get their stuff in Um, room for everybody's story, either in the main stage play or these little community engagement events I'll be doing associated with the show. I just want to point out that about five minutes ago, you said you moved to Cary because you didn't have to work and then just spent the last five minutes talking about how you're working. I know. <laughs> I, I know. Specifically this. No, but it's great. Like that's, uh, you can't ever not work on this stuff. That's the weird part about placemaking. Um, you're always in a place. That's right. And it's really hard to turn that off. And I think that's well, sometimes a, a liability, but sometimes it is, it's the greatest. It totally thing. is. It is. And I think for me, though, the other thing was that my daughter was starting middle school and I felt the need. It's just not as cool anymore. I hate to say this to be an American traveling internationally. I I feel like I have to answer questions about our entire like I'm not here for that. You know, sure. um, and she's starting middle school and I thought I need to be here. Middle school is supposed to be this nightmare. I'm terrified. And I thought I better pivot and be home a little bit more. And I remember flying to Stockholm or somewhere in the middle of the night and seeing a guy get, you know, zip freak out and zip tied on the plane and carry. And I'm like, why am I doing this? <laughs> why, why, 
what what am I doing? I mean, I've been to Australia five times. That's fantastic, but there's a risk to it. Sure. That, you know, and they're like, oh, you can enjoy the place. You can go. No, I can't. I can't. I'm not going to go out at night. And I don't care where it is because if, if something happens to me, my fa- you know, there's a family I got to worry about. Right. So I was hanging out in a hotel room and I'm like, meh, maybe time to do something a little different. And that's amazing place came along and it's been great. We've, my productions have won state and national awards. I'm very excited about it's super cool. it makes money for the town or for whoever wants to fund it. So there you it's, go. A, it's a moneymaker. Too. Which is awesome because it's not, you know, just like the rest of your work, community theater, not often associated with uh, netting profit. a profit. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Costing money. Yes. Making money. Not so much. Yeah. Um, but it's yeah. always been important. And it's, it was, I was thrilled to learn about that because it's a particularly strange, another, you just found another really weird way. I did. To I did. mess with attachment. And so. For that, yeah. I am grateful. So well, thank you for all of this time. But what are you doing now? What are you guys, what are you up to outside of Amazing Place Productions? So Amazing Place, um, we're working on the story of Carrie. That's coming up. Um, and some community engagement events. The other thing about theater, I think, is that you you don't just do a show. There's things you do. So we're doing things like, and we're having to bring it online, but a town records day where people, everybody's going up into their attic or their grandmother's attic or whatever, and finding perhaps documents, things that tell the story of the town that we don't know about and collecting that data again, grows attachment. You become part of the story of telling of the place. So that's going on. I'm starting a huge um, initiative in Corpus Christi with a friend of yours, Joe Borgstrom. That's super exciting for me. Um, and I'm also a director of special initiatives for the Brian Hamilton Foundation. So that's a whole other, a whole other uh, side gig, I guess, um, for me, where Brian is a big believer in um, entrepreneurship for all and the idea that ownership is key in America to breaking cycle of poverty. Um, and I am a, as you can tell, a habitual entrepreneur, plus I have a background in a lot of, you know, the hard to employ incarcerated folks, youth, um, community practice stuff. And so I'm lending some content expertise um, to strategic partnerships and things like that for the foundation. And we're doing some really cool stuff there too. So it's a, it, you know, I, I stay busy. I stay busy even during COVID. I know it. I know it. I am very grateful. I am unbelievably grateful for the time and for the friendship. And uh, I love you so much. Thank you for taking this time. And I cannot wait to see, hopefully in real time, the story of Carrie. Uh, Yes, it's going to be, it's going to be great. Well, I have to tell you one last thing. The last show I did for Carrie, I always have to do something innovative. And what I did was it was a story about the constitution, which So what I did was, is I casted the founding fathers um, in as elected officials in our town and, and people came out to see, cause you know, our mayor was George Washington, a female councilwoman was Ben Franklin and people sold out. I couldn't, I couldn't keep people because again, show people of your place in a different way on a subject you don't think you care, tell untold stories and people just love it. So um, 
I, I just think it's a very exciting time that we have to leverage how people now understand what place means to them because it's been taken. And if it's sort of a, our, our, it's like the place making 9-11. I hate to say that, but it is the moment where people are unfrozen in thinking about the value of a place. They get it now in a way they never have before. And it is incumbent upon us to use every tool we have to use this opportunity to make places stronger, not only for the people, but for the economies. And this is our call to action. We might not get another one quite like this. And I'm afraid if we don't take full advantage, and that's why I'm so spastic in everything I do, because this is the moment. I hear I might even get to work with you a little bit. Oh, that would be my favorite. I hope so. (laughs) We're working on it. We're working on it. I can't think of a better way to end. Thank you so much. You're welcome. So that's it for this episode. Again, I'm Jack Story. Thank you for listening. And if you found this conversation to be worthy of your time, please be sure to subscribe to the podcast so that you never miss an episode. Take care and see you next time.